Welcome to Puzzling Company, your home for at-home puzzles and mysteries. Here are your hosts, Jared and Zach. Well, welcome to Puzzling Company, everybody, here in the Deadbolt Mystery Society studio. It is another day for talking games, puzzles, etc. Zach, how are you feeling today? I'm doing really good. How are you? I've been better. Yeah, that's fair. I'm just stressed about some work-related things, but thus is life, right? That is true. And if we, if we didn't need an escape from work, why would we play these games? I like these games in general, but they do definitely help with escaping real-life stuff at times. So, yeah, same with this podcast. Like right now, it's not a time to worry about other things going on. It's just time to talk about games and stories and puzzles and enjoy that process. Oh, yeah. So. Today is actually a uh, big deal for us yeah. because this episode marks the first episode. We've had a lot of firsts this season, but it's the first episode we are covering what I would call a traditional video game. We are talking about a new game that just hit Steam not that long ago and a Nintendo Switch. It's called Zoria, the Celestial Sisters. and It's a really, really cool split team or split co-op experience yeah it was a lot of fun well hang with us we will tell you more about it in our first section right after this hey friends jared here asking you to join our patreon community monthly support is a great way to help us in our mission of growing the at-home puzzle and mystery world so check out our show notes or go to patreon.com and search Puzzling Company and find the membership level that's right for you. See, I told you we'd be right back. Did you believe me? Yeah, I mean, it was only like a few hours, technically. <laughs> Did you hit pause? Did you leave us? We're back in here and we are talking again about Zoria, the Celestial Sisters, Zach, Without ruining any of the things that we really liked about this game, tell us about this game. And since it's a video game, like maybe what you might even need now that there is more than just an internet connection required to play this game. Yeah, uh, so Zoria the Celestial Sisters, a co-op split game experience in which you play two different roles. One is basically the son or Solve, I think is her name. And the other one is Asu, who is the, I'm going to call it like the... God of the Night, I guess, or yes. whatever the Lord, or whatever yeah. they want to make that the name of. It's like a sun and moon. Sun play. and moon, yes, yeah. yeah. But they're like sisters. But you are basically working together to bring them back together. And there's some narrative that goes along to explain why. But you must play as both of them to bring the knights back to the land. Yes, one of the sisters has run off in a fit of jealousy. Yes. I would call it, and that has consequences, Zach. Yes, and then this is a game that you can play on Steam, um, so you do have to have an internet connection. It does have some recommended graphic settings that you will need to play the game, but you can play it on your computer with, you know, you can use like a, a controller on your computer if you like, or if you play on the Switch, you'll be able to play with the Switch's yeah. um, controllers and, as well. And the other unique thing about it is there's actually two ways to play it, which can drastically affect your experience. You can play it split screen on the same screen, and that's helpful because then you can see what the other person is seeing. But the way Zach and I played it was online co-op yes, to where our screens were separate, and that adds some challenge in my opinion. But I want to jump into talking about what makes this game so unique. I've played a lot of different games. Zach, I know you have as well. I haven't seen a primary puzzling mechanic like this before i've seen things similar mm -hmm. but i've never seen this so why don't why don't you tell us how most of the puzzling and what the primary way of solving a puzzle is in this game sure so the main puzzle mechanic of zoria the celestial sisters is shadows you are trying to keep asu in the shadow so that she can walk around and get to these crystals that she's trying to gather throughout the game 
So the sun god is basically controlling um, the sun the entire game to move it around so that people can walk in shadows, and that is the main mechanic. You are trying to move the sun so that the shadows are cast in a certain way that your character can walk on them to get to certain objective points and move through puzzles. That is most of the puzzles. There is also other NPCs that you run into uh, that don't like what you're trying to do and try to stop you from staying in the shadows. And there is also mechanics that involve the person on the ground playing as Asu to push things into the light to help the sun god complete other tasks. Yeah, and, and it's just really unique because it's it's almost like a physics-based puzzling. Yeah. Like you're working with very authentic shadows, so the structures around you, they matter. Yes. The way that you decide to move around the level, it matters. The goals that you're trying to pursue. And if you step outside into the light, you get zapped. I was going to say, yeah, Asu dies within like one second <laughs> of being really in the light. Good. It's pretty rough. I even remember that one time we were doing it and I accidentally stepped into like the silhouette of a window. And it was yes. like, good job, Jared. Like the one place you couldn't stand like, on I that wall. <laughs> I was going to say, there's literally one opening and you hit, you jumped into it. We even joked leaving work yesterday. Like it was, oh, it's shadowy here when we leave. And I was about to step into a, a shadow. And I think Zach like stuck his hand out and was like. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. I also was, uh, I originally like, I went away from Jared and started walking in this little <laughs> light beam. And then I used Jared's shadow so that I could get to my car. But that's what's so cool about it. Like my kids play this game when we go on a walk. Yeah. Like this is such a, a simple concept that anyone can pick up on. Yeah. Well, cause I think the creator will talk about it or someone from the team that helped work on this game, but it's interesting because I've dealt with other games that deal with like time as a concept in terms of puzzling, like changing how things are orientated, how you get places, how time actually functions within the game. But this is the first game that really focused fully on the shadow mechanic yes. that involved because that's another way to show the time is just how you move the the clock or the sun around so you get the different shadows yeah and, and it makes sense like the one sister who's the night she can't exist in the sun yep and and so it's it's a really cool play they do some good stuff narratively there as well but that is the hook of the game is if you want to try a unique style of environment-based puzzling this does a really cool job of it mm -hmm. the second thing that i would say is We've played a lot of split experiences. It's one of our favorite game types. Yeah. I've never seen one with roles like this because when you play as Solvig and you're literally in the sky, you have this big top down view. You can see the entire level. But when you're playing as Asu, you're locked into what I would call a traditional third person yeah. view. And because of that, it's very unique. Like we play, Zach and I have played TikTok A Tale for Two. We've played We Were There. We, we've played these things where we're very used to being of the same. Yeah. But split. This is you're split and you're different. Mm -hmm. And that that gave some some really cool moments. But as we're going to talk about in our room for improvement, it also has its downsides. But Zach, what are what are some of the upsides of being able to tackle two different roles? Well, it brings a lot of content to the game, but also you just get to interact and play as two different roles. So you can you know, having the full eagle's eye or bird's eye view of the game lets you have a different perspective on how the puzzles are going to work or how you have to deal with certain things and other NPCs. But I thought it was fun because it, it involves a lot of when you get to the more difficult puzzles or the ones where it's time-based in terms of getting the person on the ground or ASU to certain objectives. There is kind of a time element. So there's a lot of coordination and being like, this game requires, all, I mean, because we play games and communication is important, but I think there's a difference between communicating and court, like in coordination. It's like, you know, we'll, we'll play some games and I'll be like, Jared, like, this is what I see. Like, this is all you really need to know. This is a game where I go, Jared, I see this and you have five seconds for me starting moving the shadows. You need to follow it and then land on this part, like at the exact time that we need to so you don't get hit in the sun. Yes. And it was really fun because it was hilarious when we failed that, like when be like, okay, we're gonna do this. And then Jared would accidentally walk out or I like accidentally moved the shadow too much or, or when I played as a Sue, it's dexterity. Yeah. Right. Like that's, and we, I think we talked about this when we said, what are going to be the big differences in these different types of games that we're adding to the podcast and no other game has ever tested our dexterity. Yeah. Right. Like there's been time constraints. There's been other constraints, but now we're in a world where we'll talk about this more in our middle section. Like, the environment and your ability to move through it matters so much. Yeah. And that should be taken advantage of. 
Yeah, and then the other part I would say we really liked about the the role mechanic, and I think we've brought up a little bit, is you can play as both. Now, what we mean by that is that it's not a single game experience or single player experience. It's that at any point throughout your journey as playing co-op, you can switch roles. So as an example, for the first like five to eight levels, I played as the sun the entire time, and Jared played as Asu or the the night god as I'll call her. Um, I call it boots on the ground. Boots on the ground, yeah. <laughs> you played as boots on the ground um, for those levels. And then we realized, I mean, we had seen it, but I basically was like, we we were discussing something, we switched roles. And it was really cool because it was giving me a different perspective because, you know, I would tell Jared things I was seeing or how I was dealing with things. Jared's like, I can't see that. And I'm like, how can you not see that? I was getting, I a little, see I was getting really frustrated at points because I'm like, I'm clearly telling you how this works, but you don't understand it. And I'm like, okay, I get it now. But it also gives like a different perspective of how the puzzle actually works because it was cool seeing it like from a bird's eye view, everything looks small and I'm like, I get how it's going to function. But then when I actually got to play as Asu like on the ground, it was kind of interesting seeing the world fully other than it being like from a, a top, like a top eye view. It was really cool, but I, I did really like being able at any point to switch between the two roles. And just to be clear, it's once you start a level you can't switch in the level in the level, but outside of it, outside of like, any level, you, you could, could switch, switch roles. Yeah. I was gonna say every other level you like, if you really wanted to, like we could have done like first level, I was the sun, the second level I'm boots on the ground. The next yes. level I'm sun on God. You could do that. You could do that however you like. And then what I kind of brought up and it kind of our third point is that it offers a lot of content. Yes, it does. Um, there are 42 levels to the base game that I know of. There's a demo version as well. I think that has like, maybe I think the first 10 levels. Yeah. Um, but You'll notice when you play the game, when you complete a level, you get like this circle or a star basically saying that you've completed the level as the sun or the moon, or there's another spot. And what we learned is that there is a way to platinum this game in terms of you play every level as both roles. So you'd play like level one as the sun, as the moon. But then there is a secret gem hidden on the island somewhere that you can reach. Yes. Like by doing a puzzle or figuring out how to get to it. And if you complete those, there are special levels in the game or like constellations that let you do like special like puzzles on them. We unfortunately did not get to play any of them because we only, I think, got like three or four of the the things. We yes. weren't actively looking. We wanted to just <laughs> Sometimes play we couldn't even find them. <laughs> yeah, some of the times we just didn't even know where they were. But it is fun because we realized like you could 100% this game. Like there was a like a moment where we were like, oh, like we have this, but we're like, oh, there's so much more content. Like technically, I don't even know what the first 10 levels are like as the opposite role. Absolutely. And that, and I agree that the uniqueness works well in that respect. Mm -hmm. In that if you want to get the full experience and you want to 100% this game, you're going to have to play both roles. It'll obviously move quicker. You're going to, and then you're going to have to have some other challenges. So I agree. The demo game is free. The full game costs $24.99. I think right now, this may not be going when the time it airs, but it's on sale for $14.99. But I, again, we're always talking about value, right? Mm -hmm. Your time per the amount of games that uh, amount of game time that you're playing. I think this has a lot of value in the regards that 42 levels and the levels get longer as yeah. you go throughout the game. So I think that's pretty cool. I want to move now to room for improvement. And Zach, I want to come back to talking about this idea of the different roles. There is a lot of goodness in it, but there is also some areas where it can be a tad bit frustrating. Yeah. Especially if you're taking on the role of Asu, which is the person on the ground. Tell us a little bit about that. Because honestly, I think I played more as that role, but I think it stuck with you a little bit more when you made the switch from being mostly the sun to being on the ground. Yeah, my biggest room for improvement with that role of Asu is that Early on in the game, like I said, we did not, we're being very public about it. We did not, we have not played the last like, 28 levels or yes. whatever it is, 24, 25. We probably made it through about a third of the levels. Yeah, like so we, we yeah. did like 30, 40% of the game. We've The other 60% of the game we've not played. I don't know how this changes, if it becomes more involved. But ASU does feel like a, at times, walking simulator. And what I mean by that is that it's not to diss like how the game functions. It's more that most of the puzzle is on the shadows. So it is on the person who is playing as the sun god to set up things for the person to walk through. So it did feel like at times when I was playing as the person on the ground or as Asu, I realized that I was essentially just waiting for Jared to set things up for me. And then I was kind of just sitting there like, okay, I just wait like 20 seconds till he sets this up. And then right. I move and then I wait again. And then it felt like a little unfortunate that there was not as much interaction for me to be involved in other than waiting for things to be set up for me to walk. Absolutely. And the difference is that is in other split experience games, 
you could still walk around and explore. Yeah. Right. But in this game, I'm stuck to a, location. you are stuck to such a tight boundary that if you, if you're playing with a crappy sun, God, that would be the worst. Yep. And thankfully we, you know, we communicate and we talk well, but it does feel if you're playing a that especially at the beginning, you have a lot of sitting to do. Yeah. It definitely got better when we got to like the last level we actually finished was like level 18 or 17 technically. And I played as the sun God for it, but Jared will probably tell you that like, I definitely felt like Jared had more to do in that yes. one than ever. A lot, lot more of coordination and saying like timing. Yeah. It was all right? like timing based things. It was like, okay, well we have to move the shadow as you're moving as well. So you need to be ready to follow it while we're moving at a pace. And you have like eight seconds to do this before the like shadow goes away. Right. So we had to do that and move. And that's like the fun part with this game is that it does add different mechanics to like make it more difficult to run and like walk in the shadows. So, I, and then there is a mechanic that we won't spoil too much about that involves Asu helping out the sun God. And that definitely adds in some interaction, but it is at the end of the day, still like a, you push it and then it's kind of done. Well, that, that takes us into the second thing is it kind of makes you question the pacing of each level mm. because there's just a lot of, there's just a lot of downtime for either role. And it feels like in other split experiences, like I said, there's, there's still more to see. There's still more to do. You may be stuck, mm -hmm. but you still have other opportunities when you're stuck in this game as Asu, you have nothing to do. And if the sun is having to transition very quickly into a different time of day or a different thing, it just leaves you feeling stranded is no, the way that I would call it's, it. It's definitely true. There were definitely moments that even as, I mean, I feel like it was mostly as Asu you feel this problem more than the sun God, but there were times even when I was playing as the sun God, like I was just waiting for Jared to like, do his part you know i'm like okay i set this up but maybe jared doesn't fully get it yet or doesn't see what i see so i'm waiting for him to make the click and then i go like okay and then i finally like i have to wait that like minute of getting it done then they do it and then it's now an awkward thing of like i have to figure out what jared's trying to do so that i sit there waiting on jared to like figure out what he needs to do next or like I, while i'm doing the math of like how do i keep the shadow in the way we want it yes and that's what was hard like those two things like the ASU role is really rough at some points, and then it feels like it throws off the communication and coordination elements that you're doing because it's not always working at the same time. Yeah, and I, like I said, I'm very intrigued to actually continue playing this game at some point or like talking about it more because it yes i'll keep playing the game with you excellent <laughs> well because i think uh, like like i said we these are room for improvements don't get me wrong but i do think I'm very interested at some point to see the later part of the game because I do think it could level out more than yeah. I Because so far, it is getting close to that point where it felt like in our last level, it was more difficult and definitely took more time to complete it. But even though it was a little frustrating, I felt like me and Jared were both just as involved in like trying to like math out how we were going to do it. Absolutely. And, and that could be the inverse argument here is, yeah. is sluggish onboarding, yeah. right? It's one or the other. It, it either feels like it's too slowly paced, but you could say like, well, we're teaching you all of the things you need to know to tackle the later levels. Yeah. But then in that case too, I'm saying that could have been done quicker because I felt personally like, like that dynamic that you talked about, about quicker moves and faster shadow movements. I was ready for that way before could be my leanings and opinion as a gamer, but mm -hmm. it, one of those two things is either true. Yeah. And that kind of leads us into the third thing we want to talk about, like who this is for. This is great for people that love a unique aspect of puzzling. If you're looking for traditional puzzling, there are some of those elements in there. But this is more, like I said, it's mechanic and physical based. It's yeah. spatially based, I think is the best way to say it. So people who don't mind waiting and figuring, and I would say there's an element of like trial error play. If that is something that you like, I think this is a good game. Mm -hmm. Something that I thought that I think could be really interesting is if you wanted to play this game more of like uh, if you have a more experienced person and a less experienced person or even like a parent child role, what I would do is I would put the child as the ASU role or the less experienced person as the ASU role. And then the more puzzly person as the soul person. Yeah. As the son. Uh, would you, would you agree with that? No, I think it would work really well in that way. Cause, cause side note, I've been playing toad treasure tracker with my seven year old son, Elijah, and you can play that in a similar format where one person is moving the character and kind of the other person's controlling the camera. 
we started off the other way and I very quickly said, we're going to switch, we're going to switch this up very quickly. Uh, and he's, and we've had, we have enjoyed that interaction and and that's a cool feature of that game, but it, it made me, made me think about all that, but overall really unique game, really cool indie puzzle game that if that is your vibe, if you like a good environment, some narrative mixed in there, this could be a really cool game for you to pick up. Agreed. That's really going to wrap us up for our first section. We have Puzzles to the People coming at you next. Solve puzzles, write reviews, win prizes. It's time for Puzzles to the People. Man, I'm just really enjoying Deadbolt Mystery Society games lately. They're just giving me a real sense of nostalgia. Yeah, I've been really enjoying them. My favorite part about them is they just feel balanced. You get a little bit of an escape room, a little bit of a murder mystery. It kind of reminds me of those cartoon TV shows I grew up on. Same. There's one I'm specifically thinking of. It kind of involves a dog and some humans in it. Oh, the Jetsons. I love that show. Okay, close but wrong. No, they kind of like solve mysteries together. Oh, Courage the Cowardly Dog. Okay, they don't solve mysteries. Courage literally does random things. Jared, I was specifically trying to tell you it's Scooby-Doo. That doesn't sound right. No, 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 Blue's Clues. Okay, they are solving puzzles and mysteries, but no, 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 no. I'm talking about Scooby-Doo. Well, at least the good thing for our listeners is if you like adult Scooby-Doo, you can play a Deadbolt Mystery Society game. And when you want to go purchase one, you can put in the promo code PC15 for 15% off subscriptions and single one-time boxes. No, I've got it. It's Air Bud. Jared, that's a real-life dog. That's not even animated, and he doesn't even solve crimes. Well, welcome back to Puzzling Company. We are now here in the second section that is Puzzles to the People, brought to you by the Deadbolt Mystery Society Studio. If you've not played a Deadbolt game, you totally should. In this section, this is kind of a part of the show that Jerry and I get to look at reviews for the game, or we kind of look up people's comments or ask for your comments about the game that we are covering on the show. And we also usually at some point or at times talk about topics that are related to the game that we cover on the show this week. So Jared, I actually have no idea what you're going to talk about. Would you like to tell me? We are talking about the brave new frontier that video games offer us, which is environments. Okay. I want to kind of flesh this out because this game is so dependent on that notion. This game fundamentally could not be played as an at-home game. Correct. Unless you had some kind of crazy, like, dark game with, like, a flashlight. And even then, that's still a little bit... It's it's still a little weird. But I want to talk to the importance of having, in video game talk, what we would call, like, a level or a space. Why is this so important to the video game world? Because other games build worlds, but not like this. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that video games do offer a literal view of it. I mean, they they let, they can create the world. They give you it. They have the engine to do it. It doesn't require you to be outside. It doesn't require anything. You just need a computer or something or a console or something to play it on. But it, it is interesting because this game fundamentally has to work with its environment. If it didn't work in the real-time shadows, because I believe they used Unreal Engine, yes. if I remember correctly, Unreal Engine uses like real time shadowing with the like sun and stuff like that. So it has to work. Like you fundamentally have to test the building so that it works. So you understand what it looks like, but then you also have to build an environment that makes sense in the narrative, you know, so it can't be like in the game. Most of it is buildings or like structure, kind of this ice covered world because yeah, yeah. of of the narrative that's going on. But you could argue like if you took away some of like the aesthetic to it, it's just a building, but they've had to build the building exactly so that the shadow worked in the way that they wanted it to, where it was just long enough in certain parts or they have a pillar that's this like this high up in the air so that it could make a shadow that at this point of angle in time, it would hit this way. And it was really cool because it did give, we got to see the world. We had watched it. You get like the the narrative videos in the, in the game, but then you get to see the world and you get to like walk around it as Asu and see what it actually looks like. It makes sense narratively into the world. It's really cool being able to finally see it because then a lot of it on the other end, when you do like at home games and they don't, you know, and they can't create the world for you, you have to create it. So right. you, you almost at points being honest, you either almost ignore it and you just focus on the puzzles and you forget about the narrative building that you've built up or you create it. Like in my head, I have an idea of like when we're playing certain games, what it would look like outside. Or like I see a photo, like we might get in the game and I build the rest of the photo, you yes. know, cause it only shows like a part of the building. But like, I'm going to say as an example, USB escape in that game, you know, you get pictures on a USB drive, you know, and you're trying to solve this case, 
But like, as an example, like one of the photos shows you a shack, but you know, and I see the grass and everything, but I'm like, I can almost imagine what that would world would be like if I took away, like, like if I could do a 360 view, yes. like I know what the grass look like behind me. I know there's a forest right there, what that would be like. And that's really cool because that's on me to figure that out, like, or to make that all connect. And it's on the creator to try to build as much as they can, where you have that freedom to create the world almost that they want you to make, but also yes. your own while video games can build exactly what they want you to do, but it has to work. It has to fit. And I think that's an important question that I want to ask you about is I'm speaking specifically to puzzle games, not racing games, shooters. We could have a whole nother philosophical debate about whether there's puzzles in those type of games mm -hmm. or what is a puzzle game, but that's not what I want to ask you about. Have you ever played a video game where you're solving a puzzle, but the environment didn't matter? Not really that I remember too much. I mean, most require the physical land space and it does have to matter because like how it's set up, like most, most video games I know that are, or most puzzles that are in video games that I think of, even like God of War, which that's like a, but it has puzzles in God sure, of War. Sure, it does have puzzles, yeah, but I wouldn't like, call it a puzzle game. Correct, right. yeah, but I, but as an example, like that's what I'm trying to think of, like what's a game I could think of that has a puzzle in it, but really like it's not made around the puzzle? But you could even argue those, like a lot of the puzzles that are in those types of games too are physically based ones where like it's moving us like a structure into this place or being able to jump exactly here or doing this ability. I mean, a lot. I and mean, literally the physical space matters, I think, in every video game one I've played. Like even like I know you said not puzzle, like specifically only puzzle games, but like the Spider-Man on the PlayStation 4 and 5, like a lot of those puzzles, some of them are more like standard puzzles where you're doing like, oh, like connect these uh, pieces of DNA so you put them together. That doesn't matter about the physical space. Right. But then there's puzzles that are like, okay, you need to like move around the city this way. And that super matters because then it's like, okay, how do I jump between this spot and this spot quickly enough? You know, so the, the physical space does matter in terms of how you you traverse around the city. But yeah, I, I mean, like when we played the, what was it? We were there, we were here. Yep. Those games really require the space. Like, I mean, they they build the castle that you're in and that stuff matters in terms of doing the puzzle. Like I remember, I think one of the, my most memorable puzzles in those games was we were doing this puzzle. I think it was in the second or third we were there or we were here. I forget the names of all three of them, but yes. we were playing like the last one. And there was this puzzle that I don't know if you remember, Jared, but it was this chess game puzzle. Oh, <laughs> where there was a chessboard for one player right. and then there was the physical action. You stood on a gigantic chessboard as the other player. Yes. And what you both did very much changed for the other person. Like I would say like, oh, this is what my board looks like. But for you, it was completely different, but they still worked the same. But you had to figure out how that works, like what movement on this board makes this board move or like yes. how does that affect this? Yes. And it was so cool because it, when I looked at both point of views or like I tried to understand it, like it was sick that like it really mattered, like that physical space for the person on the board. Like is my like if I was doing the other point of view, it didn't matter as much. I was just looking at an actual chessboard. No, I think that's really true. I, I'm hard pressed myself to think of a a game where the environment doesn't matter. But here's the thing. When you get that and I'll call it a tool or maybe even an advantage, you're responsible for the usage of it, right? Like bad games. And I'm not saying that Zoria is one of those, but bad games do not utilize to the fullest ability, the capabilities of what they have. Correct. Like hmm. think of some of the, the bad, the worst games that you've played video games that you've played. What was wrong with them? Well, they had bad mechanics or, you know, there were bugs that were based on level design or missing content, missing or like, content, or but potential, but yeah, it, yeah. but it, what it does is it slowly eats away at the most immersive factor that I think video games have, which is to show you the world that you're in. Then you talked about that. Like it is, I don't think one is necessarily better than the other, right? Like for game makers that make our mystery games that are more board game or more just at home, whatever format they come in. It is a marvel when a game immerses you to where you naturally are building out what's going on around you. Agreed. That takes a lot of skill. I think equally as much is, okay, now every video game is going to show us the environment that they're in, but the really great games either go to the nth degree to show that or are super creative in how you're interacting with those. And I think the shadow element is a really creative use of that concept. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely, I almost, 
feel like this is more of a debate with like movies and books. And what I mean by that is that it is almost the same argument is that books are on your entire imagination to build that world. Sure. And that's why a lot of people love books way more than movies. Sure. Because what happens in movies is that they build out that world for you. And then the issue becomes that they do a good job most of the time, but then some of them fail on it very fundamentally because it, it's really hard to create what everyone wants. Like, or you, you have a picture of what you think it would look like in the real world. So you like make a movie of it and it's not what you thought. Like, you know, I'll create Harry Potter in my head. And then the movie versions, I think the movie versions are pretty good. Right. Don't get me wrong, but you just lost half of our listeners. What? <laughs> I think they're good <laughs> with that opinion. I think they're good too, but that's a very divisive divisive comment well i think some of them are not great but it's it's an argument i'm just saying they're not like the worst books it's not like yeah, I saw it's, Ar- not- it's not aragon okay aragon <laughs> upsets me still to this day but well we're not gonna welcome to the aragon podcast where we talk about how the movie version disappointed me on every level i won't even go see ender's game for that very reason exactly but I- the, but i'm i guess sorry i don't want to go too off, off off topic with it it is the same thing with these games and i think video games is that when i get to play some of these at home games i get to create that world and then when I play video games, they build the world for me and it can work really well or it can fail. Like it just goes like instantly doesn't give me the same vibe. It's like, oh, I, I wish I could have created that world. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. And, and I think there's something to that. Like there's almost a, and this could be a conversation for another talk as we get to play more video games, but the concept of hyper-realism mm. of the environment versus like a more fantasy-based yeah. environment. Like, I know everybody right now is freaking out that Kirby is in 3D. I'm so excited for Kirby. It, like, like everyone is, uh, everyone's talking about, like, what is this three-dimensional Kirby? Like, we've never had that before. He's also been, always been on a 2D platform. Yep. But it, it matters. It, it matters so much. And we're at the point with technology where we can build these beautiful 8K, turn your computer all the way up so you can see every which way that you can die in Elden Ring and type of thing. So it's just so interesting that we get to dive into this world now where there's this new element, Mm -hmm. right? But I don't want to diminish at all. You're absolutely right. Where you are having to build that element, I can think can be just as, if not more powerful in some situations. But like we always talk about, it's how you wield what you have. Yep. Zoria and its puzzle mechanic, I think, knocked it out of the park. Mm-hmm. It's not a perfect game, but it's really strong in that vein. Yeah. 100% agree. Any closing thoughts that you have on environment? Maybe looking forward to other games that we want to play. Do you think our opinions will vastly change on that? Or do you have other thoughts about that as we continue playing puzzlers in video game world? No, I think all that really matters is that whatever you decide to do, do the best you can with it. But then if you are going to do a puzzle where you build the world, make sure the world makes sense with it. Yeah, I think that's a great way to close it out. We're super excited because our our guest today, as we're going to talk about the next session, is one of the level designers. And they have a lot of really, like, they said some things during the interview and I was like, oh, like, that's a gym. Write that down. Like, that's, that's a really good point. And it's cool to just see uh, how different people, we're all puzzlers, but how different people in different worlds and in different adjacent spaces really think about something. So we'll get to meet them in the next section, but that's really going to wrap us up. We've got questions for creators coming at you next. There are some really awesome people who make the puzzles we love to solve. This is Questions for Creators. Puzzlers, we need your help. We need you to leave us a five-star review so that more people can find us. It doesn't matter if you prefer the black and electric green of Spotify or the medley of pink and blue at Apple. Go to wherever you listen to this podcast, click that five-star rating, and let's grow our community together. Well, Welcome back to Puzzling Company. As we mentioned, we have one of the level designers mm-hmm. here today with us. And super excited to get to talk to them, to get to know them and hear about their experience working on this game. So we are going to not waste any more time, jump right in and get to know them. So tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of how you got to the place you are, and then how you kind of became part of the team. I'm Julien Grimard from the area of Montreal. I have a background in graphic arts and 3D art, and now I uh, 
went back to study to become a game designer. And after my studies, I opted on the team to uh, become a become a level designer for the for for Mad Life and for Zoria. And the game is a game that actually started before I went to university. There was a team there uh, at the school where I went that did the uh, prototype for the Ubisoft contest because Ubisoft has a contest for schools every year. And the subject that year was to play with time. And instead of just doing stuff that where we can rewind time or stuff like that, they, the team decided to do something with the shadows. So it's the, the time of the sun going from morning to evening and with the shadows. And they came up with that great idea of the puzzles where one of the characters, there's two players, one of the, of the players plays the sun that can move the sun from morning to evening. And the other player is uh, plays a small character on the ground that can only walk in the shadows and it creates a whole bunch of puzzles. So yeah, when I uh, ended my studies, one of my teachers sent me that uh, job. Well, come on, come on, come on. I don't know how to say this in English, but uh, the team from Mad Life were looking for a level designer and one of my teachers sent it to me. And uh, yeah, I got the job and I was really happy to work with the team on this project. So one of the things that we know in the video game world is very rarely is one or two people responsible for the entire creation of the game. So can you tell us a little bit about your team and what it's like to work in such a collaborative environment? Yeah, uh, well, we have four programmers on the team. Uh, we have uh, Daryl, Lisa, Maxley, and Felix. Uh, so they're the programmers doing all the all the game systems, doing all the online stuff. We have three artists. We had uh, Catherine, uh, which is the art director, and Jenny, which is the environment artist. And uh, Ariel is uh, the character artist. And on the design side, we had also Xavier, who helped. Well, he was in the original team. He was the game designer and the level designer on the original team. And he helped also with the level design and game design for the final project. And we have Kathleen also, who did the 2D art for the cinematics and did the concept arts also on the project. So yeah, this is the size of the team. And also we have the people at TLM, the publishers that really helped us. So we had extra programmers to help and people for debugging and uh, the Q&A by quality assurance to uh, make sure that there's no bugs in the game to test everything. So yeah, it quickly becomes a big project for, for video games. So what kind of puzzles can we expect to see in Zoria? In Zoria, there's two types of puzzles that mix together. There's really the shadow puzzles, which is uh, something that's, I don't think it's really been done before where you have the character that must stay in the shadows and we have to create paths on the level using the shadows. So that's more 3D visualization puzzles. Players really have to understand how the light works, how shadow works, and how to create paths from shadows from different objects using this. And we also have more traditional puzzles, stuff like boxes that you can push, buttons that you can press, doors that you can open, platforms that move but they're all mixed together with the shadow puzzle. So if you have a platform or a door that opens, well, the door isn't just a door. It's also a shadow that moves since you can move the door. So it's all a mix of all these things, which I think makes a really unique experience. And uh, it was really fun to work on that project for this. It was really, we really had to think outside the box all the time. One question I always wonder, and then as we were thinking through it through this game, it feels like this game could have been made as a single player game, but why did you decide to make it a split type of cooperative puzzle game? What I think really makes the experience special apart from the puzzles is also the communication between the players. Uh, it's rare games like this that really require coordinations between two players because one player has to move the shadows while the other player is moving on the shadows. Then there are also enemies that are moving or platforms that are moving that need to be coordinated with the shadows. So it's it's a game that could in theory be played by a single player. Like while I was playtesting my levels, I had sheets to make it work on a controller, but I still needed to have the mouse beside me because there was too much stuff. There's not enough joystick on a keyboard to move everything, especially because the sun is not only moving time from left to right, but it's also the sun can move around in the level to activate some stuff and to uh, burn enemies. 
and also to move objects later in the game. So there's really a lot of things that need co coordination between the two players. And we really wanted also to have the two perspectives because one of the players, the sun, has a camera that's really high up in the sky. So the player has a top-down view on the game. The other player is on the ground and only see what's around them. So both players need really to communicate what they see uh, to be able to solve the puzzles. And I think that's one of the, the key aspects of, of what makes the game interesting. And there's a two version, like there's the split screen that breaks that a little because you can see both sides at the same time. But for the full experience, there's the online where you only see your screen. It's not split screen. So you don't see the other point of view. So players really have to communicate to be able to solve the puzzles. So we know you're a level designer. Can you tell us a little bit about your rules or philosophy for good level design? Yeah, uh, for level design, like one of the key aspects is really to, to make sure that the players understand what he needs to do, not necessarily how he's going to be able to do it because there's a puzzle to solve. So the player has to figure it out by himself, but they need to be able to really know what they need to do. So this is one of the things in uh, Zorya, we have the, the objective, it's like a floating artifact. So we always make sure that at least one of the two players sees it at the beginning of the level so that they can try to understand how they're going to get to it. And then as you progress in the level, you have to, it's not just the final objective that needs to be clear for the player, but you have to have gates throughout the level. So if the level is bigger, the players need to kind of understand how they're going to proceed in the level, but then need to figure out how they're going to do it all by themselves by solving the puzzles. And also um, one thing that was difficult in Zoria, for games like this that tell a story also, you have to have levels that, that also help tell the story. So the levels can't just be random boxes. They need to show something that fits in that game world. And that was really a challenge for Zoria since we have, uh, we have to play with the shadows. <laughs> so we have to make buildings that create the, the, the shape of the shadows that we want, but they still have to make sense. So that's also something that's important. You have to make sure that the, the level helps for the story and helps to show the world what you're doing. And also it's just let the players solve the puzzles by themselves. Something that I, I really like about puzzles game, puzzle games, like you have tutorials to help you understand the basics, but then you have to really trust the players and let them understand and try to help them in a subtle way that they won't see that you're helping, helping them understand it. But really, because that's the goal of puzzles games. You, are, you want the players to feel smart. So you don't want them to feel like they're dumb and <laughs> they don't understand. So you want to make sure that it's challenging enough, but that they're going to figure it out by placing little clues to, uh, to help them progress through, through your level. So you talked a little bit about what you think is good level design. What are some of the pitfalls that you really try to avoid in level design, some of the do's and don'ts. One thing that often happens in uh, indie puzzle games that I think is really important is to not mix difficult with complicated. Because a lot of indie puzzle games, instead of doing more and more difficult puzzles, they just make it more and more complicated. So they add more elements. They add really like 10 different elements that interact with each other. And it makes the level like hard to complete. So you, you have the impression as a designer that you are making your game more difficult because you see the playtesters and they have more difficulty. But it's not fun difficulty. It's just that your brain cannot process that many information at the same time. So it just becomes too complicated. So it's really to make sure that you keep, you stick to the basic element of your puzzles. Like if you want to do a puzzles with a, with a box and and a shadow, <laughs> you stick to these and you try to make it difficult just using these without adding just a bunch of stuff just to, to fake that it's more difficult than it really is. So that's one of the, the, the big things, I think, uh, for indie puzzle games. And then a follow-up question to that, as you were talking about difficulty, I really liked what you said. Tell us about how you've increased difficulty while not complicating things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure, because if you just make it more complicated, you can reuse the concepts that you already have and you can just like put a bunch of them together. 
Uh, like how I was working on the, the puzzles is every time I had a new system to introduce in a level, uh, I would just take a sheet of paper and do sketches for every idea I saw that I could do with the system, either just with the system itself or with the shadow that it would create. And I wrote just a bunch and bunch uh, of ideas. But then as you progress, if you want to make the levels more complicated, like I say, you could just mix all of these together. But if you want to really do smaller levels, you really always need to introduce new ideas for the players. And also you need to make sure that it's done in a way that it's still challenging, even if even though the level isn't too big, it's still really challenging and to let the players figure it out. Because if you do the level too small with just a simple idea, it can become too easy sometimes if you really direct the player like, okay, if you go left, then it solves the puzzle, <laughs> you know? So you really have to really concentrate what's the, the essence of the level that you want to do and how to, how to make it. Can you tell us a little bit about the future of Azoria? Like if there's more content coming with the game or what's in the future for it? But then also, can you tell us anything that's coming from the future of your team and what you guys are going to be working on? Yeah, uh, for Zoria, uh, for now, I think that's it. Uh, we never know for the future. There could be sequels. Uh, there could be other things. Uh, for now, we, we're, we're done with the project. And right now, we're working on a new project. The only thing I can say for now, the only thing that's been announced so far, is that it's going to be a, a sugar shack management game. So since uh, we're all from Quebec in Canada, uh, sugar shacks are really popular here. So uh, it's going to be a sugar shack management game. And also it's going to include uh, different uh, folk tales from Quebec. So a lot of stories from our, our history that are sometimes don't make sense. You don't know how it, it went from there, but we're going to include that in there. But that's all I can say for now. But uh, people can follow us on social media if they want to learn more. Hopefully we can, we can share more in the future. And the last thing we look to do is we'd love to know what you enjoy playing. And I'll split this up into two things for you. Since we're in the video game world, maybe give us a couple of your favorite puzzle video games in that genre. And then secondly, just any other game that has been really impactful or important to you that you think our listeners should check out. Well, their favorite puzzle games, there's a Stephen Sausage Roll. I don't know if you know this game, but it's a game that came out a couple of years ago. And it's a game inspired by Sokoban the old classic puzzle games where we were just pushing boxes around. But Stefan Sassajol really brought, brought this concept to the modern game era and really changed everything. Like it's the best puzzle design I've seen. It's really incredible. And there's been a lot of other puzzles inspired by Stefan Sassajol that, that came out uh, after that. Like right now I'm playing Bonfire Peaks and Bottle Nights, which are two uh, sort of Sokoban style game. And they're always small, small levels, but they become so, so difficult. <laughs> Other games also, uh, there's uh, Anairo, The Dream World. Uh, it's created by Alison Smith. I think they're a company from Montreal, if I'm not mistaken. And I really love the games that they create. It's games that uh, mix, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, it's a game that mixes fictive stories with uh, real events. So in the game, there's a story that's being told, but to solve the puzzles and to understand what's going on, you have to search on Google and search on Wikipedia and learn about the history of different places. And I really like this because you learn a lot through these games. And also it helps make the story more engaging because it feels more real since it's attached to real events. So their, their games are really, really cool. And currently also I'm playing Tunic. Tunic is like a mix between old Zelda games and sort of Dark Souls. And it's so good, my mind is blown. Because the game is not a puzzle game, but it's, it, it includes some puzzle elements. Like it doesn't really teach you how to play the game. It doesn't tell you where you need to go, but you have to figure it out by yourself and by finding also pages that are inspired by the little booklets that you would get with NES games back in the days, but it's written in another language. So you can't really read it. You just need to figure it out by the images and some scribbles on the pages. So yes, that game is really, really good. Yeah, uh, well, the game is available on Steam and on, uh, on uh, Nintendo Switch. Uh, also, 
Uh, one fun thing is that uh, even though it's a multiplayer game that can be played online, only one of the player has to buy it. So if one player buys it, the other player can use the friend pass game and they can play together online. Uh, also, if you want to know more about our future games, people can follow us on social media. So Mad Life Games on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook. So they can follow us there to, to see what we do next. Julian, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're super honored that you got to be our first guest from the video game world. Yes, yeah. Um, and we look forward to getting to talk to you in the future about games. Again, you can find Zori and the Celestial Sisters. It's on the Nintendo shop to play at Switch. It's on Steam. Go check it out. This is really cool. Uh, you can uh, find this game just by Googling it. And then you can also uh, find the development team Mad Life by searching them as well. So give it a try. Zach, I've, that's really wrapping us up for our, our first video game episode. It is, yeah. How can uh, our friends out there, our listeners out there, give us a nod? Yeah, there's a few different things you can do to give us a nod, quote unquote, uh, at Puzzling Company. The Why do you, you always mock me in my hip language? You can help out Puzzling Company by doing <laughs> the following things. Uh, you can support us on Patreon. Uh, we have a few different levels you can come support us on if you'd like. Come interact with us on our Discord by doing that. And uh, We were doing the puzzle hunt recently. We play some games with some of those people in our Discord. It's a lot of fun. We'd love to have you guys with us on that. You can also leave us a review, like a five-star review on any platform that you listen to the podcast on. If that's Google, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever. Uh, we would really appreciate it. And the final thing you can do is follow us on social media at Puzzling Company on Facebook and on Instagram. That would be amazing. Yes. Well, Zach, this was the first episode of April. Yep. Spring is in the air. Mm -hmm. We here in uh, Tennessee have gone through daylight savings time. Like we have finally have our nights back yes. a little bit. It's glorious. But we have another game to cover next week. Do you remember or know what we're covering next week? No. It's a great new game. Came off of Kickstarter. It's called Redlock. Harken back to... Uh, our puzzle box. Ooh, yeah. I was gonna say that when I've looked at the Redlock bo puzzle box that's in our in the closet of all our games, it looks really cool. It does, and they're doing some really unique elements with it. So I'm super excited to dive in that next week. And then we've got some cool stuff coming down this this month. This is uh, going to be a really fun month. I'm very excited about it. Mm -hmm. But that really is going to wrap us up for today's episode. For Jared and Zach, this has been Puzzling Company. See you guys. Thanks for listening. Find us on social media at Puzzling Company and online at puzzlingcompany.com. Check back weekly for new episodes. Until next time, keep puzzling. This has been Rogue Media Network Podcast.